0: Welcome. Welcome to a special edition of Jazz, Just the Way We Like It. Today we're dedicating this episode to Martin Luther King, celebrating Dr. King, and I have in the studio with me, uh, once again, my daughter, Vanessa. Hello. Welcome, Vanessa. It's good to have you here.
1: Dad, am I not supposed to hear myself? Yeah, you're supposed to hear yourself. Oh, okay. I don't know why it's not doing it.
0: Can you hear yourself now?
1: Um, not really, but can you hear me? I hear you. Okay.
0: <laughs> no, I don't really hear you. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe this is working, so let's keep going. Let's keep going.
1: Okay, we can keep going.
0: Yeah. I'm excited about this. This is, uh, uh, first time I'm doing a celebration of Dr. King, and, uh, I have some stories to tell about him, and we're going to be listening to parts of his speeches. And usually people listen to or associate and identify with Dr. King the I Have a Dream speech or I've Been to the Mountaintop speech. Yet they're not his greatest speeches, nor are they his most controversial speeches. We're going to listen to parts of three other speeches that I consider his best, and they all took place in April 1967, and in fact, one of them was April 4th, 1967, and that was to the day a year before he was killed. In other words, Dr. King was shot April 4th, 1968. And that speech was given at Riverside Church, and it's beyond Vietnam. Uh, but before we get into that, let's sort of set the pace with a little music. And we got to go into some music with the Civil Rights Era, with Seaweed, Honey, and the Rock. Sweet Honey in the Rock, a piece called Keep your eye on the prize.
2: Babe, keep your eyes on the prize. Hold
0: on hold on. Hold on, hold on. hold on. hold on.
2: Hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Hold on. Paul in silence begin to shout. Down. Right. keep your eyes on the prize, on whole
0: Sweet honey in the rock. Keep your eyes on the prize. That group came out of the civil rights struggle. And that was one of the theme songs of the marches. Uh, What'd you think of it, Vanessa?
1: I just remember that song from when I was a child. You know, anytime February came around in public school, Black History Month, um, PBS channel. I always remember hearing that song keep your eyes on the prize and so anytime I hear that that sentence I automatically go back to my childhood.
0: Okay. Let's listen to some of Dr. King's speeches and this is probably this is has personal value to me because April 4th, 1967, I was a college student Attending school in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And a friend of mine told me that Dr. King was in town and he was giving a speech at Riverside Church. And uh, I went to that speech. And this is a part of that speech. Now, you have to remember, in the 1960s, you know, between 63 to 67, 68, especially 67, Uh, up until that point, urban northern blacks did not follow Dr. King. They weren't playing that, you know, uh, nonviolence. They were more into uh, the Black Panthers. They were more into revolution, not the following of Gandhi. And I I have to admit that at that time, I was not an admirer of Dr. King. But that speech sort of turned me around and changed my perspective. And it's so funny that I look back because this is the 5th, in April will be the 50th anniversary of this assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. I cannot tell you what I was doing when I first heard that JFK, John F. Kennedy, was killed, assassinated. I cannot tell you what I was doing when I heard that Martin Luther King was assassinated. I can't tell you uh, when just about anyone I know, when I first heard I died or assassinated, what I was doing. But I can tell you, and I clearly remember, when I first heard on April 4th, 1968, the day... In the time and the place that Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Well, let's listen to part of this speech that ended up turning me around,
3: sort of put my eye on the prize. ...us all off on what in some circles has become a popular crusade against the war in Vietnam. I say we must enter that struggle But I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And if we ignore this sobering reality, and if we ignore this sobering reality, we will find ourselves organizing clergy and layman concern committees for the next generation. They will be concerned about Guatemala and Peru. They will be concerned about Thailand and Cambodia. They will be concerned about Mozambique and South Africa. We will be marching for these and a dozen other names and attending rallies without end, unless there is a significant and profound change in American life and policy. such thoughts take us beyond Vietnam, but not beyond our calling as sons of the living God. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. During the past ten years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression which has now justified the presence of U.S. military advisers in Venezuela. This need to maintain social stability for our investments accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala. It tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Cambodia and why American napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. (laughs) Increasingly, by choice or by accident, This is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing oriented society to a person oriented society when machines and computers profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people the giant triplets of racism extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered a true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of South America and say this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead the way in this revolution of values. That is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There's nothing to keep us from molding a recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into a brotherhood. These are days which demand wise restraint and calm reasonableness. These are revolutionary times all over the globe. Men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression, and out of the wounds of a frail world new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who set in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to injustice, The Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch-anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions that we initiated. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world, declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores And thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. A genuine revolution of values means, in the final analysis, that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all mankind. This, often misunderstood, This oft misinterpreted concept, so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force, has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions— have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another, for love is God. And every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate, or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the records of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Tornby says, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil, therefore the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word." We are now faced with the fact, my friends, that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, that is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flooded ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumble residues of numerous civilizations, Written the pathetic words too late, that is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. Omar Khayyam is right to moving finger rights, and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today—nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. If we do not act, we shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is the calling of the sons of God, and our brothers wait eagerly for our response. Shall we say the odds are too great? Shall we tell them the struggle is too hard? Will our message be that the forces of American life militate against their rival as full men, and we send our deepest regrets? Will there be another message of longing, of hope, of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost? The choice is ours, and though we might prefer it otherwise, we must choose in this crucial moment of human history. As that noble part of yesterday, James Russell Lowell eloquently stated, Once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide, In the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side, Some great cause, God's new Messiah, often eats the gloom a blight, And the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet his truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And if we will only make the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. If we will make the right choice, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. If we will but make the right choice, we will be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream.
0: Wow, that's Dr. King. A lot of people say that speech given at Riverside Church and the one given before that, uh, why I'm against the war in Vietnam, was the reasons why he was assassinated, because if you listen to that speech, he's calling for a revolution, a true revolution of values, transforming society. Vanessa, what do you think?
1: Absolutely. Um, That was the first time that I really, really listened to that speech. You know, you hear the different speeches, but that was the first time that I really listened. And um, what you just said is what I picked up on revolution of values, which is does not involve arms. It doesn't involve weapons. It involves the transformation of your mind. And there's nothing more powerful.
0: He was saying society needs to change.
1: But come that comes when when you transform your mind and everyone becomes on one accord, that's where the strength... Yeah.
0: Well, you, and, the, and, the, and the, why people don't hear this kind of speech, because the speeches they do hear about King was King advocating uh, acceptance in this society. Yes. This speech... And the other ones we're going to listen to portions of, King questions that very society.
1: And then he asks you to challenge the status quo.
0: Yeah. Well, listening to that speech, you begin to know why Nina Simone sang this song. So. For this hour,
4: Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. We stated before that the whole program is dedicated to his memory, but this tune is written about him and for him. And so we had yesterday to learn it, and so we'll see once upon this planet earth lived a man humble but preaching love and freedom for his fellow men He was dream. would come to earth to stay, and he spread this message all across the land. Turn the other cheek, he'd plead, love thy neighbor was his creed. Humiliation death He did not dread With his Bible at his side (laughs) From his pose he did not hide It's hard to think This great man is dead, oh, yeah. Well, the murders never cease. Do they ever hope Ever hope to gain Will my country For stand or fall Is it too late For us all And did Martin Luther just die in vain. Because he'd seen the
2: mountain
4: And he knew he could not stop. Always living with the threat of Folks, you'd better And he knew he could not stop, always living. Life is If you have to die It's alright Cause you know heard all kinds of stories, but I heard that this was uh, his favorite song, at least at the near the end of his life. Uh, Last year, a year ago, maybe more longer than that now, Lorraine Hansberry left us, and she was a dear friend, and... She had her favorite song, The then Langston Hughes left us, Cold Coltrane left us, Otis Redding left us. You can go on. Do you realize how many we have lost? Five. Then it really gets down to reality, doesn't it? Not a performance. Not microphones and all that crap, but really something else. We've lost a lot of them in the last two years, but we have remaining Monk, Miles, Miles. (laughs) I love you too. Of course, for those that we have left, we're thankful, but we can't afford any more losses. Oh no, oh my God, they're shooting us down one by one. Don't forget that, because they are. Killing us one by one. Well, all I have to say, is that uh, those of us who know how to protect those of us that we love, stand by them and stay close to them. And I say that if there had been a couple more, a little closer to Dr. King, he wouldn't have got it, you know, really. Just a little closer to him. Stay there. Stay there. We can't afford anymore. He had seen Mountain Top and he knew he could not stop always living with a threat Dead ahead. Come on, Sam. Folks, you better stop it.
0: Nina Simone, that was Nina Simone why was the king of love dead Nina Simone boy Vanessa how'd you like that?
1: I didn't like it, I loved it <laughs> <laughs> okay Yeah, it, it was as if she was in the room yeah yeah, really passionate, powerful could tell how inspired she was
0: yeah, I uh, left that little solo part on because I thought it was important to have that and to hear and feel how that death moved her. Her bass player, Gene Taylor and her, wrote that the day after he was assassinated. And three days later, on uh, April 7th, they recorded that song. So uh, they were definitely feeling it so were a lot of people as riots and rebellions and reaction broke out all across this country when Dr. King was assassinated. Let's uh, keep this tribute to MLK, Dr. Martin Luther King, going by playing a little bit of one more of his speeches that most people probably never heard and one of this, another speech that I consider one of his greatest and most important. We listen to a little bit of Beyond Vietnam, uh, and this is called the Three Evils of Society. Well, that racism
5: is still that hound of hell which dogs the tracks of our civilization. Ever since the birth of our nation. White America has had a schizophrenic personality on the question of race. She has been torn between cells, a self in which she proudly professed the great principles of democracy and a self in which she madly practiced the antithesis of democracy. This tragic duality has produced a strange indecisiveness and ambivalence toward the Negro, causing America to take a step backward simultaneously with every step forward on the question of racial justice, to be at once attracted to the Negro and repelled by him, to love and to hate him. And there has never been a solid, unified, and determined thrust to make justice a reality for Afro-Americans. The step backward has a new name today. It is called the white backlash, but the white backlash is nothing new. It is the surfacing of old prejudices, hostilities, and ambivalences that have always been there. It was caused neither—it was caused neither by the cry of black power, Now by the unfortunate recent wave of riots in our cities, the white backlash of today is rooted in the same problem that has characterized America ever since the black man landed in chains on the shores of this nation. this does not imply that all white Americans are racist. Far from it, many white people have, through a deep moral compulsion, fought long and hard for racial justice, nor does it mean that America has made no progress in her attempt to cure the body politic of the disease of racism, or that the dogma of racism has not been considerably modified in recent years. However, for the good of America, it is necessary to refute the idea that the dominant ideology in our country, even today, is freedom and equality, while racism is just an occasional departure from the norm on the part of a few bigoted extremists. Racism can well be that corrosive evil that will bring down the curtain on Western civilization. Arnold Tornby has said that some 26 civilizations have risen upon the face of the earth. Almost all of them have descended into the junk heaps of destruction. The decline and fall of these civilizations, according to Tornby, was not caused by external invasions, but by internal decay. They fail to respond creatively to the challenges impinging upon them. If America does not respond creatively to the challenge to banish racism, some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. The second aspect of our afflicted society is extreme materialism. An Asian writer has portrayed our dilemma in candid terms. He says, you call your thousand material devices labor-saving machinery, yet you are forever busy with the multiplying of your machinery. You grow increasingly fatigued, anxious, nervous dissatisfied. Whatever you have, you want more. And wherever you are, you want to go somewhere else. Your devices are neither time-saving nor soul-saving machinery. There are so many sharp spurs which urge you on to invent more machinery and to do more business. This tells us something about our civilization that cannot be cast aside as a prejudice charge by an Eastern thinker who is jealous of Western prosperity. We cannot escape the indictment. This does not mean that we must turn back the clock of scientific progress. No one can overlook the wonders that science has wrought for our lives. The automobile will not abdicate in favor of the horse and buggy of the train in favor of the stagecoach, of the tractor in favor of the hand plow, of the scientific method in favor of ignorance and superstition. But our moral lag must be redeemed. When scientific power outruns moral power, we end up with guided missiles and misguided men. When we foolishly maximize the minimum and minimize the maximum, we sign the warrant for our own day of doom. It is this moral lag in our thing-oriented society that blinds us to the human realities around us and encourages us in the greed and exploitation which create the sector of poverty in the midst of wealth. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves. and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. If Negroes and poor whites do not participate in the free flow of wealth within our economy, they will forever be poor giving thy energy, thy talents, and thy limited funds to the consumer market, but reaping few benefits and services in return. The way to end poverty is to end the exploitation of the poor, ensure them, <clears throat> ensure them a fair share out of the government's services and the nation's resources. I proposed recently that a national agency be established to provide employment for everyone needing it. Nothing is more socially inexcusable than unemployment in this age. In the 30s, when the nation was bankrupt, it instituted such an agency, the WPA. In the present conditions of a nation glutted with resources, it is barbarous to condemn people desiring work. The soul-sapping inactivity and poverty. And I am convinced that even this one massive act of concern would do more than all the state police and armies of the nation to quell riots and steal hatreds. And the tragedy is that our materialistic culture does not possess the statesmanship necessary to do it. Victor Hugo could have been thinking of 20th century America, when he wrote, there's always more misery among the lower classes than there is humanity in the higher classes. The time has come for America to face the inevitable choice between materialism and humanism we must devote at least as much to our children's education and the health of the poor as we do to the care of our automobiles and the building of beautiful, impressive hotels. We must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. We must further recognize that the ghetto is a domestic colony. Black people must develop programs that will aid in the transfer of power and wealth into the hands of residents of the ghetto so that they may, in reality, control their own destinies. (laughs) This is a meaning of new politics. People of goodwill in the larger community must support the black man in this effort. The final phase of our national sickness is the disease of militarism. Nothing more clearly demonstrates our nation's abuse of military power than our tragic adventure in Vietnam.
0: I I am gonna, Vanessa, I know you never heard this speech before, but this is called The Three Evils of Society. It was at a conference at Stanford University on the new National Conference on New Politics in uh, April 1967, that year 67. Both of those speeches I uh, uh, played, the portions of those speeches, but the entire speeches was done in 67. Now you hear in this speech he is raising some real issues of power and wealth, and and inequality. Uh, most people don't associate this with Dr. King. Well, listen to him. I know it took you by surprise. What do you think?
1: I mean, he. The only reason is because it's 2018, and it's as if he just gave the speech yesterday, because the exact same societal issues that are going on the exact same gaps the exact same mentality the exact same thing so what do you said it's 50 years later yeah that's what takes you by surprise it's as if he's oh, yeah. speaking to us today um and that that's scary but yesterday. it's today yep yeah, it's scary but it's also an opportunity
0: okay well wow. Uh, we're getting towards that time, folks. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed this tribute to Martin Luther King. I wanted to play another portion of a speech, uh, Another speech, rather. And I think I'll play just a little proportion because that was this is a speech also done in 1967 called the uh, "Other America." But I don't have time to do that right now. So uh, I guess we uh, gotta listen to a, a little bit of You bit Lost. Well, Dr. King, as you can see, was more than just a civil rights leader, He's humanitarian, and in many ways a revolutionary. This is Hubert Laws. Amazing grace. You ever heard this before, Vanessa? Of course. I ask for it daily. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the show. And until the next time, peace and love.
1: Thank you.